This audio production was made in collaboration with Audible Anarchist. Ecology and Revolutionary Thought by Murray Bookchin Part 3. Observations on Classical Anarchism and Modern Ecology The future of the anarchist movement will depend upon its ability to apply basic libertarian principles to new historical situations. These principles are not difficult to define. A stateless, decentralized society based on the communal ownership of the means of production. There is also an anarchist ethic, if not methodology, which Bakunin basically summarized when he said, quote, We cannot admit, even as a revolutionary transition, a so-called revolutionary dictatorship, because when the revolution comes, concentrated in the hands of some individuals, it becomes inevitably and immediately reaction, unquote. There is also need, I fear, for a vigorous, uncompromising article on taking anarchism seriously. There are far too many so-called anarchists comfortably situated in the millenarian world of bourgeois reform, and its many official and material rewards, whose notions can be regarded as mere extensions of Adam Smith. But that is a separate matter. What disquiets me for the present is the word classical as applied to anarchism, a word fortunately that is usually decorated with quotation marks. The word has strange connotations for a movement whose very lifeblood is a fervent iconoclasm, not only with respect to authority in society at large, but in itself. To my thinking, anarchism consists of a body of imperishable ideals that men have tried to approximate for thousands of years in all areas of the world. The context of these ideals has changed with time, but basic libertarian principles have altered very little through the course of history. It is vitally important that anarchists grasp the changing historical context in which these ideals have been applied, lest they needlessly stagnate because of the persistence of old formulas in new situations. In the modern world, anarchism first appeared as a movement of the peasantry and yeomanry against declining feudal institutions. In Germany, its foremost spokesman during the peasant wars was Thomas Munzer. In England, Gerard Winstanley, a leading participant in the Digger movement. The concepts held by Munzer and Winstanley were superbly attuned to the needs of their time, a historical period when the majority of the population lived in the countryside and when the most militant revolutionary forces came from an agrarian world. It would be painfully academic to argue whether Munzer and Winstanley could have achieved their ideals. What is of real importance is that they spoke to their time. Their anarchist concepts followed naturally from the rural society that furnished the bands of the peasant armies in Germany and the New Model in England. With Jacques Roux, Jean Varlet, and the enrégé of the Great French Revolution, we find a reapplication of substantially the same concepts held by Munzer and Winstanley to a new historical context, Paris in 1793. A city of nearly 700,000 people, composed, as Rude tells us, of, quote, small shopkeepers, petty traders, craftsmen, journeymen, laborers, vagrants, and the city poor, unquote. Rue and Varley addressed themselves to a basically classless people who might properly be compared with the sullen Negro masses in the Watts district of Los Angeles. Their anarchism is urbanized, so to speak. It is focused on the need to still the pangs of hunger, on the misery of the poor in the restless Gravillier district. Their agitation tends to center more on the cost of living than on the redistribution of land, more on popular control over the administration of Paris than on the formation of communal brotherhoods in the countryside. Proudhon, in his own way, probes the very vitals of this context. He speaks directly to the needs of the craftsmen whose world and values are being threatened by the Industrial Revolution. In the background of nearly all his works is the village economy of the Franche Comte, the memories of the Bourgeois and Marnay and the Tour de France, he made as a journeyman in the printing trade. A benign paterfamilias, an artisan at heart who loathed Paris. 
quote, I suffer from my exile, unquote. He wrote from Paris, quote, I detest Parisian civilization. I shall never be able to write except on the banks of the Dubes, the Ognon, and the Lou, unquote. The fact yet remains that the very Parisians who were to, quote, storm the heavens, unquote, in 1830, in 1848, and again in the Commune of 1871, were mainly artisans, not factory workers, and it was these men who were to adhere to Proudhon's doctrines. Again, my point is that the Proudhonian anarchists were men of their times and dealt with the problems from which stemmed most of the social unrest in France, the painful, agonizing destruction of the handicraft workers. In the latter half of the 19th century, anarchist thought finds itself in a new historical context, a period marked by the rise of the industrial proletariat. Its most effective expression for the time is to be found less in the works of Bakunin and Kropotkin than in the less permanent articles and speeches of Christian Cornelison, Pierre Monat, Big Bill Haywood, Armando Borghi, and Fernand Pelloutier. In short, in the anarcho-syndicalists. That many anarcho-syndicalist leaders should have drifted from anarchist notions to a reformist trade union outlook should not surprise us. In this respect, they often followed the changing mentality of the industrial working class and its growing stake in bourgeois society. If we look back then, we find that anarchist principles, insofar as they have been more than that personal idea of a few isolated intellectuals, have always been clothed in a historical context. Before the Great French Revolution, anarchist doctrines rose on the full swell of peasant discontent. Between the French Revolution and the Paris Commune, the historical wave that carried these doctrines forward was artisan discontent. And between the Paris Commune of 1871 and the Spanish Revolution of 1936, anarchism, this time together with Marxian socialism, flowed and ebbed as movements with the fortunes of the industrial proletariat. There is still widespread peasant discontent in the world today. Indeed, the source of the most violent discontent will be found in the villages of Asia, Latin America, and Africa. There are still craftsmen whose social position is being undermined by modern technology, and there are still millions of industrial workers for whom the class struggle is a brute, immediate fact of life. Many aspects of the older anarchist programs, sophisticated by historical experience and matured by later thinkers, doubtless still apply to many parts of the world. But the fact remains that in the United States and in many countries of Europe, a new historical context is emerging for anarchist principles. The distinguishing feature of this new context is the development of gigantic urban belts, the increasing centralization of social life into state capitalism, the extension of automated machinery to all areas of production, the breakdown of the traditional bourgeois class structure, I refer here to the decline of the working class, not merely to the disappearance of the old robber barons, the use of welfare techniques to stifle material discontent, the ability of the bourgeoisie, more precisely the state, to deal with economic dislocations and crises, the development of a war economy, and the realignment of imperialist nations around the United States, what is crudely called the Pax Americana. This new era of state capitalism, which has supplanted the older era of industrial laissez-faire capitalism, must be dealt with earnestly and without regard to earlier precepts by the anarchist movement. To fail to meet this theoretical challenge will doom all existing movements to a lingering, burdensome stagnation. New problems have arisen to which an ecological approach offers a more meaningful arena of discussion than the older syndicalist approach. Life itself compels the anarchist to concern himself increasingly with the quality of urban life, with the reorganization of society along humanistic lines, with the subcultures created by new, often indefinable strata, students, unemployables, and immense bohemia of intellectuals, and above all, a youth that began to gain social awareness with the peace movement and civil rights struggles of the early 1960s. What keeps all strata and classes in a state of astonishing social mobility and insecurity is the advent of a computerized and automated technology, for it is virtually impossible to predict the vocational or professional future of most people in the Western world. 
By the same token, this very technology is ripe with promise of a truly liberated society. The anarchist movement, more than any other, must explore this promise in depth. It must thoroughly assimilate this technology, master its development, possibilities, and applications, and reveal its promise in humanistic terms. The world is already beset with mechanical utopias that more closely resemble Huxley's Brave New World or Orwell's 1984 than the organic utopias of Thomas More and William Morris, the humanistic trend in utopian thinking. Only anarchism can infuse the promise of modern technology with an organic perspective, with a man-oriented direction. Ecology provides a superb approach to the fulfillment of this historic responsibility. It is more than likely that if the anarchist movement does not take this responsibility seriously and apply itself fully to the job of translating the promise of technology into an envisionable body of guidelines, a technocratic, mechanistic approach will tend to dominate modern thinking on the future. Men will be asked to resign themselves to improved and gimmick-ridden version of existing urban monstrosities, of a mass society, of a centralized bureaucratic state. I do not believe that these monstrosities have permanence or stability. Quite to the contrary, they will seethe with unrest, regress toward a new barbarism, and eventually fall before the revenge of the natural world. But social conflict will be reduced to its most elemental, brutish terms, and it is questionable indeed if mankind will be able to regain its vision of a libertarian society. There is a fascinating dialectic in the historic process. Our age closely resembles the Renaissance, some four centuries ago, from the time of Thomas More to that of Valentin Andrea. The breakdown of feudal society produced a strange, intermediate social zone, an indefinable epoch, when old institutions were clearly in decline and new ones had not yet arisen. The human mind, freed from the burden of tradition, acquired uncanny powers of generalization and imagination. Roaming freely and spontaneously over the entire realm of experience, it produced astonishing visions, often far transcending the material limitations of the time. Entire sciences and schools of philosophy were founded in the sweep of an essay or a pamphlet. It was a time when new potentialities had replaced the old actualities, when the general, latent with new possibilities, had replaced the burdensome particulars of feudal society, when man, stripped of traditional fetters, had turned from a transfixed creature into a vital, searching being. The established feudal classes were breaking down, and with them nearly all the values of the medieval world. A new social mobility, a restless, almost gypsy-like yearning for change, pervaded the Western world. In time, Bourgeois society crystallized out of this flux, bringing with it an entirely new body of institutions, classes, values, and chains to replace feudal civilization. But for a time, the world was loosening its shackles, and it still sought a destiny that was far less defined than we suppose today, with our retrospective historical attitudes. This world haunts us like an unforgettable dawn, richly tinted, ineffably beautiful, laden with the promise of birth. Today, in the last half of the 20th century, we too are living in a period of social disintegration. The old classes are breaking down, the old values are in disintegration, and the established institutions, so carefully developed by two centuries of capitalist development, are decaying before our eyes. Like our Renaissance forebears, we live in an epoch of potentialities, of generalities, and we too are searching, seeking a direction from the first lights on the horizon. It will no longer do, I think, to ask of anarchism that it merely free itself from 19th century fetters and update its series to the 20th century. In a time of such instability, every decade telescopes a generation of change under stable conditions. We must look even further to the century that lies ahead. We cannot be extravagant enough in releasing the imagination of man. This has been a production of Audible Anarchist. You can find more Audible Anarchist on YouTube.